Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. Uh, because I, I like to be able to tell you things that you may not have already heard anywhere else. A hot new album just dropped from the Dalai Lama, who turns 85 today. <laughs> okay, so the recording features teachings by the Dalai Lama and mantras set to music. Why lift this up? Um, because you and I need to become adept at these kinds of cultural conversations. Uh, As Christians, we need to know what is different about what the Bible teaches and what we espouse as Christians based on what the Bible teaches versus what someone who is wildly popular in the culture, known as the Dalai Lama, what this individual teaches and why we would not be um, subjecting ourselves to the mantras set to music of the teachings of the Dalai Lama. You and I uh, possess a if we're Christians and we actually uh, follow what the Bible has to say, not only believing in God, but believing God. So let me just start there this morning. Do you believe God? Abraham believed God. I mean, even even the evil spirits, uh, even the fallen angels, um, even Satan himself believe in God. It's not enough to believe in God. If we're going to possess the same faith of Father Abraham, then we have to believe God. So let me ask you this morning, do you believe God? Do you take God at his word? Do you trust God to uh, deliver on the promises he has made? And if so, um, then there really can be no room for uh, syncretizing other religious ideas into a biblical or gospel worldview. And that's not to say that we are not interested in Um, what other people think or how they believe. But we do so understanding that there's true truth and that God is really God and really good and really working out his purposes in the context of human history right now. So um, as news breaks that, you know, there's a new album that just dropped from the Dalai Lama, um, you and I need to understand how Christianity is distinctive in the, in, the, in the cultural conversations that are being had in the world today. I have no doubt that the Dalai Lama's uh, new album will be wildly popular. Let me uh, pivot here quickly to another wildly popular musician. His name is uh, Kanye West. He tweets as Yay. Um, he's a rapper, if you're not familiar with him. He's also a very vibrant new believer in Jesus Christ. And um, and we have talked about Kanye West uh, several times over the course of the last couple of years, following his very public conversion to Christianity and some very public um, things that he has done. Well, over the weekend, Kanye West tweeting as Ye, which is Y-E, tweeting as Ye, 
um, he, he tweeted this. We must now realize the promise of America by trusting God, unifying our vision, and building our future. Now, there is no question that I agree with Kanye West's statement there. We must now realize the promise of America, and we must do so by trusting God. That's a very theologically rich and profound statement on Twitter by a rapper named Kanye West, who has a massive following. Among his followers um, are Elon Musk, not a Christian, but a billionaire visionary with a lot of money. And if Elon Musk should decide to back somebody like Kanye West in some kind of effort, that would be significant. So the second sentence of Kanye West's tweet is important here. We must now realize the promise of America by trusting God, unifying our vision, and building our future. I am running for president of the United States. Hashtag Vision 2020. The very next tweet, billionaire visionary Elon Musk immediately tweeting back, you have my full support. That set off a frenzy of uh, fireworks on Twitter over the weekend. There are some who would be giving a reality check here and saying it's too late to make a run in 2020. Uh, Ballots are going to be cast on November the 3rd, 121 days from today. That it's late, 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 late. However, from a redemptive worldview, it's a crazy idea. But God. Like, let's just, instead of having a reality check, let's have a redemptive reality check just for a moment and imagine what if. What if? What if God saved a guy like Kanye West in order to work out his purposes in the context of American history and therefore world history? I don't know. I'm just setting it up for conversation. All right, we got to talk about COVID. And so waiting right now to join me is Dr. Zach Jenkins. We're going to talk about everything COVID. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University, tweeting as pharma hiker. Hey, Zach, welcome back. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. Thank you so much. Um, I hope you are well as well. So far, so good. Let's talk about COVID. Um, All kinds of um, very dark headlines, I would say, related to COVID emerging. So where do you want to where do you want to start? What do you view as the latest in the COVID news we need to know on this Monday morning? Well, I think uh, there's been a lot of information that's come out about things we've been seeing in autopsies related to COVID patients. So in particular, I think it's really backing up the sentiment that we're, all the blood clots we've been seeing seem to be linked together with COVID. So the autopsies have really shown evidence of microscopic clots in the brain, in the heart, and in the lungs. So microscopic uh, blood clots. Okay, so that would be unusual. I would not be expected to have microscopic blood clots floating around, right? So tell us what a blood clot is, what it does, and why it's bad. So, I mean, whenever we have injuries in our body, our platelets aggregate together, they, they gather together, and they end up forming a clot, which we, you know, will commonly observe as being scabs. And those are our larger mm. clots that we'd see on, like, the surface of our skin. But inside the body, when little clots form, they can actually occlude blood flow. And so that's the real concern when we're thinking about COVID is in some of our very, very small blood vessels, it's quite possible that we're actually losing some of that blood flow. And so oxygen is not getting where it needs to go. 
And are there places in my body where it would be, well, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I know I'm asking some rhetorical questions here. Like, right, if if I had a, bl- uh, a blood clot in um, a vessel in my brain and something, then, then that produces a stroke. Am I, am I right in the way that I'm understanding the way that works? That's, that's correct. So we've, we've seen, with strokes in particular, a lot of cases that have been reported out of Italy and out of New York. Um, we've seen that throughout, throughout the country as well. But those are the two big locations we first started seeing those cases uh, of strokes that were really occurring in people that were young, people that we wouldn't mm-hmm. ne- necessarily expect to have a stroke. They didn't have that whole picture with all the different comorbidities we would worry about, like heart disease, et cetera. Instead, these people were getting it when they were otherwise healthy. Okay, and then blood clots, even microscopic ones in my lungs, would do what? So microscopic blood clots in your lungs would decrease your oxygen exchange with your body. So as you're breathing, you're not necessarily effectively breathing, mm-hmm. which could explain why so many people um, were, were thought to have needed a ventilator in a lot of these early cases. Oh, yeah, because they were struggling to breathe. Yeah, this makes mm-hmm. perfect perfect sense. Okay, um, so anything else in the – I mean, it it occurs to me that we're just now at the point where – um, autopsies would be performed on uh, on people who have uh, died from COVID-related complications. Um, talk with us about why there is a, a time gap there, because um, I would be a little scared, I would think, if I were asked to, to do an autopsy on a person who had died of COVID. Like, that seems like a scary thing to do. So I, I think uh, a lot of it is we're, we're at the stage now where we're trying to gather more data and, and kind of collate that together to figure out, is there some kind of common linkage with why people are dying, with why there, certain people are exhibiting symptoms? And so what we're seeing some of these coroners do is they're actually starting to get more and more data together and come up with some of these conclusions. Um and really, there's not a lot of communication that's necessarily happening between them all in mass, and that's been one of the challenges. There have been certainly cases where autopsies have been done. It's just not necessarily something that's been well communicated. All right, so Zach and I are going to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, what experts are saying related to um, recommendations and school openings this fall, uh, we are at the midpoint of summer, and so many of us are looking literally four weeks out to school openings. In other places, they're looking a couple of months out to school openings in those places where school does not uh, tend to reopen until after Labor Day. So this conversation is going to continue. Zach Jenkins and I are going to talk uh, about continuing talking about COVID-19 and its impact upon us up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continue my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Um, Zach, let's talk about what the American Academy of Pediatricians is recommending related to schools and reopening uh, this fall. Um, what are you What are you reading, and what are you hearing from your colleagues? So, so really, uh, there have been a lot of different. There's been a lot of speculation related to school openings and whether or not they cause more harm than good. And so, what's really interesting 
is the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a statement that essentially said they think going back to school is actually more beneficial for kids in the long run related to their academics, related to their socialization, their, their, so, their, their emotional well-being, et cetera, than, than that risk of really contracting COVID. So that's, that's an interesting recommendation considering all the concerns of, related to COVID. And, and honestly, I think it uh, really emphasizes to me what we've always been wondering about is will we see long-term consequences by constantly kind of being cooped up? Um, I think that the, I mean, as we survey the news and as we, you know, just sort of live with our own kids and live in community with, with other families, um, with whom we really have had no interaction now for many months. Um, I do see, you know, when we're out and about, I see, you know, kids are wearing masks. Everyone around them is wearing masks. I do wonder how their worldview, um, I mean, you know, it's not, it's no longer just talk, don't talk to strangers. There's actually a, you know, growing fear of the other being produced by, you know, by the way we are having to approach life because of the coronavirus. And so I do think that um, it's a significant conversation to talk about. You know, um, can you remind us again? I know I have asked you to repeat this information so many times, but um, we seem to be the only people that are saying this. And so I, I just feel like it's important to repeat it. This virus, at some point, the majority of us are going to get. I mean, our goal in flattening the curve was not that a lot of people weren't eventually going to get COVID-19. It was that we didn't want a huge number of people to get it at the very beginning because we just weren't prepared. Am I, am, I, am I right in saying that? And if not, please correct me. Um, and where are we in terms of the percentage of the population that either has already had or now has COVID-19 and your expectations for the percentage of the population that will get it? Those are, those are all good questions. Um, so, so really, I would say that you're, you're spot on that the original goal was to definitely flatten the curve. And I think the frustrating thing for people is that uh, the narrative surrounding what the goal is has shifted a few times. So that was the original goal. Then it was a, a goal of, well, we need to prevent people from really getting the infection, period. So what that, what that does is it really starts to create a lot of confusion and, and mistrust of, of the point of doing some of these things. Um, and, and so we did flatten the curve. But, but I think if you take a step back and you kind of look at what's happening in some of the uh, other states as we've been reopening things, which, again, I've been a fan of since the start because we have to balance long-term public health with short-term public health. Um, as we've been reopening, though, you, you, we're starting to see these big case outbreaks like in Texas where there are hospital systems that are starting to become overwhelmed. And, and so there is kind of this balance that you have to maintain between both of those things. And the unfortunate reality is people, as they've kind of integrated back into society in, in a normal fashion, have essentially operated like the virus wasn't there at all. And the problem with that is the virus hasn't gone away. Okay, so um, are we dealing with the same virus today that we were dealing with in January and February and March? Um, and I'm now reading this morning that, you know, we're back to the belief and understanding that it it may travel or maybe does travel 
through the air, through air droplets, and therefore, um, you know, would be on surfaces and therefore not only mask, but now maybe gloves. So as far as it, if it's the same virus or not, the current evidence suggests that it hasn't really changed all that much. If there have been any mutations in it, it's been just ever so slight. So it is, it is really the same virus as far as our understanding would tell us. Um, and, and that means we have to kind of learn to live with it. So if we, if we intend on integrating back into society as normal as we can, then we really have to think about how can we take measures to really keep things from getting worse. So that is simple things like trying to make sure, you know, we keep our distance apart from each other, wear masks, wash our hands, all that type of thing to prevent that spread. Um, it, it still does contaminate surfaces, although I think it's the biggest vector of transmission. It can be airborne, not just droplets, although that's pretty rare that it happens in contrast to the droplets. So, so because of all those things, there's no situation where there's zero risk. But what we can do is take measures to try to reduce that risk as much as possible. All right. So let's just go through those um, those mitigating um, things that I might do. Wash my hands frequently, wipe off surfaces that, that are frequently touched. I'm thinking here about doorknobs and flat surfaces that, you know, little hands and other hands land on a lot. I'm thinking about elevator buttons if you live in a high rise. I mean, am I, are those the right kinds of things to be thinking? And then wear a mask in case I am an asymptomatic car- carrier, I'm preventing other people from getting it. But the mask also prevents me from touching my face with my hands because my hands have been touching surfaces that have not been cleaned. Well, so, so that's all That's all correct. I will say that, you know, typically, and I'm guilty of this too, when you wear a mask, it's hard not to touch your face because it's sitting weird. Because <laughs> it's or, just you know, annoying. Or it <sighs> rise up when you're talking, <laughs> all, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, so we have to be be careful with that as much as we can be. What's interesting is that even though we've been talking about how the masks are the primary purpose, I guess the primary purpose behind that is to prevent other people from getting the infection, not yourself. There's still people out there that have this misunderstanding that it's protecting you, which isn't necessarily the case. So, I think you know, as Christians, we have to remember as uncomfortable as they are, and as much as I don't like wearing them, or I don't like the fact that my daughter wears one on occasion. It's really about protecting other people who may be around vulnerable populations. Okay, so I'm really gonna I'm gonna wear my mask out of love of neighbor. Um, I'm going to wash my hands and wipe off surfaces very frequently out of concern for myself and my family. Um, and I'm going to learn to endure for a period of time because we're not we're not through this yet. Um, but that is is that a fair way to start this week? That's that's a very fair way to start that. And, and I think, you know, this is our opportunity, especially in these times, to really show others what the love of Christ is like and how we should be kind, like him, good like him. And as frustrating as this stuff is, it's a temporary time. Amen. Amen. Hey, Zach, thanks, as always, for joining us. We really appreciate your input. We look forward uh, to these weekly updates and conversations. And, um, you know, let's just admit you're, pay- you're paying attention to all these headlines as most of us um do i mean just naturally turn our attention to some other things as well so thank you again so much you guys can find zach at cedarville university he tweets at pharma hiker zach thanks so much all right thank you we'll be right back okay sometimes it's important actually it's always important for us to talk with people who have a very different perspective than our own 
Uh, Munther Isaac and I share a faith in Jesus Christ. However, let me just go ahead and say right out, I don't, I don't support nor espouse the liberation theology um, that he's going to talk about. I don't support nor espouse the replacement theology um, that, he, uh, that he believes and understands. We're talking with Munther Isaac um, in order that we might understand the perspective of Palestinian Christians who live on the other side of the separation wall surrounding uh, the Palestinian West Bank. Uh, and we're talking uh, about this so that we can understand the perspective of people who live very differently than we live um, in a place that we often talk about from the perspective of Israel um, and not from the other side of the wall. So the book is The Other Side of of the Wall, a Palestinian Christian narrative of lament and hope. The author is Munther Isaac, and he's up next. All right, it is July, and so that means that we're giving away something different this week than we were last week. Uh, The Faith Radio Summer Reading Bundle is the giveaway this month. You go to MyFaithRadio.com and you you sign up. Um, We're inviting you to grow in your faith and deepen in your prayer life by reading with us this summer some of the assorted books off the Faith Radio shelves that you would receive in your bundle would be... uh, Titles by Will Graham, Carter Conlon, Robert Walgamuth, Johnny Erickson Tata, many others. Uh, every every one of these summer reading bundles includes the Daily Hope Prayer Journal from Pastor Rick Warren. So we're giving away a couple of bundles each week this month. You can find out more and sign up for a chance to win at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll be right back. One of the toughest challenges for any parent is knowing when to protect our kids and when to expose them to the harsh realities of the world. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. There's not a one of us who doesn't want to protect our children from harmful influences. In fact, if you could drop a protective bubble over your teens, you'd do it in a heartbeat. But the truth is, one day the bubble pops and you're forced to relinquish control. At some point, your child needs to step out into the cruel world and start making personal choices. Your goal as a parent should be to move from protection to preparation. It's something that takes wisdom, a good sense of timing, and guts. You've got what it takes. So be bold, stop protecting, and begin preparing. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Mother Isaac is the academic dean dean of Bethlehem Bible College in Bethlehem. He is the director of Christ at the Checkpoint Conference. He's also the pastor of Christmas Evangelical Lutheran Church in Bethlehem, the author of From Land to Lands. He is here today as the author of The Other Side of the Wall, a Palestinian Christian narrative of lament and hope. Mother Isaac, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, and uh, glad to be with you. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, you say that this book is an invitation, an invitation to step to the other side of the wall and listen to stories and perspectives. So that's what I'm going to invite you to do. I'm going to invite you to share your perspective from the other side of the wall. Um, how do Palestinians experience uh, experience God, read the Bible, and um, 
and experience liberation by Jesus. Let's just talk about those things. Yeah, thank you, Carmen. And uh, probably when you said that I'm the academic dean of Bethlehem, many of your listeners assumed that you're talking about uh, Bethlehem in Pennsylvania, uh, because very uh, many people I know are surprised to know that there are Palestinian Christians and that there are actually Christians in, in Bethlehem. And I always say it should be a surprise if we did not uh, if we did not exist, because after all, this is where uh, our faith started uh, as Christians. Uh, and yes, this book is an invitation to step into our side of the wall, since I feel that uh, many, uh, not only pilgrims and visitors who come to the Holy Land, uh, do not spend much time with Palestinian Christians. Uh, but many uh, Christians around the world, when they think about the Holy Land, uh, they only think of it from one perspective. Uh, that is uh, Israel, what God they see is doing with the Jewish people as if uh, we, don't, uh, we don't exist. Uh, and this book was uh, my attempt to highlight the fact that there is uh, a living church there uh, in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem, in Nazareth, in uh, Ramallah, and in the different Palestinian cities. Uh, uh, Palestinian Christians uh, continue to carry uh, uh, the, the, the faith where it all started. And we continue to be touched by the message of Jesus, uh, who always, you know, here in Bethlehem, we say Jesus was a Bethlehemite. He's one of our own. Uh, his message about a, a kingdom, a kingdom that he started in this part of the world, uh, a kingdom of a different reality, uh, where uh, God dwells with the meek, God dwells with the humble, uh, God supports the, uh, uh, stands with the oppressed and uh, uh, with, with the, uh, not just the poor in spirit, but those who are thirsty for righteousness and peace, you know, the teachings of Jesus. So that book, but this book was my attempt to uh, illustrate how over the years in my journey of faith, you know, I wrestled with issues uh, that we face as, as Palestinians, issues of uh, Israeli occupation to our land, issues of different conflicts and issues of, uh, uh, honestly, Christians from around the world looking at our land only through the lens of prophecy, uh, uh, you know, having different eschatological scenarios. And we say, there are things that are more important, more urgent, things related to peacemaking, things related to how to live with our Muslim neighbors, our Jewish neighbors, how to promote uh, a vision in which uh, uh, every dweller of the land share this land with the same rights, same resources, and so on. And let God figure out the thing about, let the things about eschatology happen by themselves. We don't have to either prepare the way or figure out exactly what will happen but we're more accountable to our uh, responsibility. Yeah. So, um, Munther, I've been uh, to Israel twice um, in 1991 uh, and in uh, 2014. Um, I have been to Bethlehem on both of those occasions, and on both of those occasions I have uh, visited uh, Bethlehem Bible College. Um, and and so I have met uh, uh the people you know of of whom you speak, and I may have met you. I don't I don't recall that, uh, but um, but I may have met very you. Possible. Uh, it's very possible, and so um, I do think that it's important to acknowledge uh, that that there is a wide range of conversation and understanding related to liberation theology, related to replacement theology. Um, I'm not afraid to uh, to talk about Christians in the Middle East. It is. Um, 
It, it is a difficult experience no matter where you live as a Christian in the Middle East. Uh, the audience of this show is familiar with the entire concept of the Levant um, and the conquest of uh, of the Muslims, uh, you know, in the 600s. So we recognize um, that this is a complex and nuanced conversation. Um, and so I want to I'm giving you know, I'm giving you this platform and this opportunity to make the case because there are others who make the case here um, for the right of Israel to not only exist, but to. Uh, but to have the boundaries and borders that uh, that that scripture outlines or that are outlined in the scriptures. And um, I'm also very quick to say that the Israel uh, described in the Old Testament is different than um, I mean, fundamentally different than uh, the Israel that exists today. And so just speak to some of those uh, conversations and realities. I know that these questions are, are questions that you answer frequently um, in your conversations yeah. with others. Yes. Uh, and, and and by the way, when you say that um, you know uh, about the borders of the land, before before I give a quick answer or try to answer this question, uh, the issue about the borders actually uh, the Bible is even complex about this issue. Sometimes the borders are uh, described as uh, from the uh, river to the river, meaning from the Nile to the Euphrates, meaning that it's much more than. Simply this little geography in, in the Middle East we call today uh, Palestine and Israel, but it's much more uh, than that. And there is a theological reason, I believe, behind that to show that God's ultimate desire is to redeem the whole uh, earth. But, you know, that's a whole different uh, topic. Uh, right. Maybe the but, maybe the river to the river is the is the river described in, in Genesis 1 and Revelation 21. Maybe the river to the river. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right? It's uh, uh, it's from Eden to the new, new Jerusalem. Well, it's to me. I look at it as co- cosmic boundaries, as explaining. You know uh, that that's why Paul in Romans four thirteen says that Abraham received the promise that he would receive the cosmos, the earth, as his, uh, the universe as his uh, inheritance. Uh, but going back to the question that you know, I know that many Christians, uh, especially within the evangelical camp, look at. Uh, the situation and think, yeah, God promised uh, 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 the land to the to the Jewish people. Uh, what we try to say is that, uh, first of all, uh, is this really how we're going to solve a very complicated conflict by looking at, uh, you know, trying to figure out who received the promise, who are the children of that promise? Uh, and anyways, the Bible claims that I am uh, in Christ, a child of Abraham, uh, an heir according to the promise. So it's not that easy. And uh, if we are to take the Bible seriously, those who are in Christ are the descendants of Abraham's, are the ones who are heirs according to the promise. But then I say as Christians, I hope we we are we can offer more than that. I hope when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, that we take this call uh, uh, much more seriously. Here we have two peoples, uh, of three faiths, claiming ownership of the land or claiming linkage to the land. Uh, They have strong roots in the land. Uh, And for us as Palestinians, you know, we've been living here for hundreds, if not thousands of years, you know, uh, this is not simply a land that we claim uh, that is ours, but we've been here for years. We've farmed land here, we've inherited land here from our ancestors. Uh, and so on. So I believe Christians have the responsibilities to take these claims by both sides seriously and listen, uh, and then 
uh, uh, you know, call for justice and truth and uh, really uh, respect even the, the international community and the international law. And when we as Palestinians or as Palestinian Christians say uh, we're seeking to live in our homeland in dignity and freedom and independence, we're in no way eliminating, uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, Israel's right to exist or calling for Israel to be destroyed. So for those evangelicals who uh, just want to support Israel's right, uh, I would say, uh, does, does your support to Israel mean that you have now to exclude uh, uh, Palestinians, which means even excluding your sisters and brothers, uh, Palestinian Christians. What about our uh, situation? Are you fine with us living under occupation? Are you fine with us living as second-class citizens, uh, for example, uh, for Palestinians who are citizens of the state uh, of Israel? So I think Christians need to uh, think thoroughly about sometimes some of the claims we say, especially when these claims have uh, direct consequences on lives on the ground, and in this case, on the lives of uh, sisters and brothers in Christ, Palestinian uh, Christians. I've seen, uh, Carmen, over history, uh, uh, Christians support and fund, for example, Jewish immigration to the land. Uh, and then uh, these uh, many of these end up living in settlements uh, built on land that was confiscated from Palestinian Christians by Israel, and then they build settlements on, and these new Jewish immigrants live on these settlements. And I ask, is this fair? And why are Christians doing this to us, their supposed sisters and brothers? So my call is to listen to both sides and to come, that's going back to the title of my book, to step into our side of the wall, take our perspective seriously, and help us find a way in which both Palestinians and Israelis, uh, Christian Jews and Muslims, uh, find a way, uh, organize our political life to find a way to live together uh, in this land. Because quite honestly, uh, uh, when Christians only take one side of the story and support only one side, we are contributing to the problem, uh, not solving it. Munther Isaac is here. We are talking about what life is like on the other side of the wall. That's the title of the book, A Palestinian Christian Narrative of Lament and Hope. Munther and I will be back in just a moment. Continue my conversation with Munther Isaac. He is, among other things, the author of The Other Side of the Wall, a Palestinian Christian narrative of lament and hope. Um, Munther, let's um, let's talk a little bit about the just percentage decline of Christians um, in your beloved city. So I think it might surprise people um, to to know that the percentage of Christians or the percentage of people living in Bethlehem um, who are professing Christians um, has decreased generation over generation, um, at least for the last, what, 50 or 60 years, right? So in 1947, Christians made up 85% of the population. By 1998, that number had declined to 40%. The latest number that I have in front of me um, is from 2016, and that is talking about something like 16% of uh, of people living in Bethlehem are Christians. Um, you've lived in the city of Bethlehem how long? And what is what is your experience like? 
So, uh, of course, this is my home, my homeland. I, I grew up in a small town called Beit Sahur, which is just 10 minutes away from Bethlehem, uh, also known as the Shepherd's Field. Mm. Uh, and now I pastor uh, in Bethlehem. But, uh, you know, I've been here for my whole life in this in this area. And uh, I agree, it's really sad to see uh, one family after the other leaving. And uh, as a pastor, believe me, uh, there barely passes uh, two or three weeks without uh, me having a conversation with either a young person or a young family who are seeking um, to immigrate. And it, it breaks my heart because, uh, humanly speaking, there's nothing I can do to convince them to stay uh, under these difficult uh, circumstances with uh, restriction of movement, difficult uh, economical situation, uh, and so on. And um, to me, growing up in Bethlehem uh, has always been, uh, you know, about uh, trying to manage uh, and to survive. Uh, you know, when I was eight years old, we've had the first Palestinian intifada. Uh, and then a uh, few years later, we had the second uh, intifada. Um, so there has always been these uh, conflict, these uh, uh, complexities, the, the violence sometimes uh, worse than other times. Uh, and as I, as you said, I've seen friends and family members leave after one uh, another because of the difficulty of life uh, under occupation. Uh, over the years, we've enjoyed, uh, I would say, a healthy relationship with our Muslim neighbors, given the fact that we are uh, Palestinians ourselves. Uh, we're not kind of an ethnic minority or a different kind of group. Uh, but with the rise of uh, political Islam, uh, uh, over the years, we've seen the rise of Hamas, uh, the militant uh, Islamic group in, in Palestine, then the rise of the so-called Islamic State. Uh, and that kind of made things somehow uh, uh, difficult, not in the form of uh, any structural persecution. We're not persecuted. Uh, thank God uh, for that. Mm -hmm. But in terms of uh, some frictions uh, every now and then with some members of the community, uh, and this again increases our responsibility to build bridges with our uh, Muslim neighbors, many of whom are very, very supportive uh, of uh, such efforts, uh, many of whom uh, would tell us, you know, tell us what we can do to help keep a Christian presence uh, in this land. I write about this. Uh, uh, in my book. So it's it's always, you know, a struggle not to base, not to build a perception of the majority based on uh, the actions of, of the minority. Uh, I think this is uh, a theme I always try to promote uh, even in my, uh, in my book. So yeah, it, it hasn't been easy. But again, this is where uh, your faith is tested. And this is where statements like uh, for example, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, become even the more challenging. And, and you begin to question, uh, do I believe in what Jesus has, has taught? You know, uh, and then you begin to say, yes, if my life has been touched by, by Jesus, uh, if I have experienced the love of God through him on the cross, uh, if we have the power of resurrection within us, then uh, do these things help us then uh, live through these uh, complexities? Uh, and it wasn't always an easy answer, as in, yes, sure, faith is, uh, you know, everything is fine, and life with Christ is, is just this easy ride. Uh, I think in my book, I try to say that it's not easy, but by God's grace, we grow into this journey of following Christ uh, as his disciples. 
You and I are probably going to have to leave our conversation here um, today. The book is The Other Side of the Wall, a Palestinian Christian narrative of lament and hope. Munter Isaac is the author. You can follow him on Twitter at Munter Isaac. You can also find him um, at Christ at the Checkpoint. It is uh, a conference that happens every couple of years. I think it's planned again for 2021. You can also find him um, at the Bethlehem Bible College in Bethlehem, not Pennsylvania. Bethlehem. When, do, when I say Bethlehem, is there a comma and a country after that? And if so, what well, is it? Well, we always say Bethlehem, Palestine, uh, because Bethlehem, Bethlehem Palestine. now is part of the Palestinian side. And, you know, uh, Palestinians live in Bethlehem and control Bethlehem, at least uh, the, the administration, the municipality and so on. It's an extraordinary place to visit. Um, and thank you for visiting with us from Bethlehem today, Munther Isaac. Um, thank you so much for giving us uh, a, a bit of a, of a window into the other side of the wall. We'll be right back. Thank, thank you. Thank you. When you read uh, the Bible and you, um, and you read the names of places like Bethlehem, um, we tend to think about what it was like in in the days of Jesus, um, but it's important to also think about it, uh, about what life is like today for our Christian brothers and sisters living there, um, seeking to be light and darkness, now down to less than 16% of the population, but still seeking to shine bright. So let's be praying for Jerusalem today, and let's be praying for our brothers and sisters in Bethlehem as well. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.